our debt has been paid. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll begin in verse 31. So today, really, to me, is a huge building up point to where the, the big story has been headed the whole way. Now, if you're new with us, we're crazy, okay? We have endeavored to preach through every book of the Bible to be able to see that this is not a bunch of individual books about a bunch of different stories and a bunch of different people. This is one book with many chapters all pointing to one Christ. And so this morning we're going to see one of the climactic moments of the old covenant in which the big story has been building all the way. All right? So Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we just say thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we are not under the law. Thank you, Lord, that we are not under the old covenant. Thank you, Lord, that we have seen Christ, that our debt has been paid, that our sin has been forgiven, that we have been washed clean. Lord, you have told us that we are to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. So this morning, I pray that you, through your spirit, would grant understanding to our minds and granting understanding to our minds that your word would penetrate our hearts and be expressed in our lives. Lord, as we aim to swim in the deeper end, I pray that, Lord, you would focus our minds and that you would allow our attention spans to expand for your glory and for the name of your sake, that, Lord, we might see you more beautifully than we've ever seen you and understand the gospel more vividly than we've ever understood it. So Lord, I I pray for my people. I pray, Lord, that you would allow them to be captivated by the glory of Jesus. I pray that you would allow them to be captivated by the good news of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would set their hearts on fire for worship of you today. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please be seated. Have you ever wished that you were one of the Old Testament saints? Have you ever found yourself kind of wondering how exciting it would have been to be back uh, in the Old Testament era and to experience God the way many of them experienced God? I know I have. When I was a teenager, uh, my pastor, he preached a long series of messages from Exodus and Joshua. And I remember hearing him, and he would tell us about how God had sent the plagues upon Egypt to deliver his people from the Egyptian. And he told us about how God divided the Red Sea, and they walked on dry ground, and then he collapsed the sea on the Egyptian superpower and drowned all of his enemies. He, He told us about how God took them up on Mount Sinai, and the earth shook, and the lightning struck, and God wrote his Ten Commandments with his own finger on a tablet of stone. 
He told us about how God guided his people through the wilderness with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He told us about how they would bring down bread from heaven and they would eat it each morning and how God poured water out of a rock so they would have plenty to drink. He took them on into Joshua and we learned about how God would have his people march around the walls of Jericho seven times and they would shout. They wouldn't lift a finger. They would only shout and the walls would come crashing down to the ground and the people would lay siege. He told us about how God answered Joshua's prayer when they were going up against the mighty Amorites and that the Lord froze the sun in its place so that it didn't move so that his people could come up against their enemies and take them down. And I used to think, oh, to be a fly on the wall, to be one of the people of God back then, how much easier must faith have been? Seems like it would have been simpler, doesn't it? I mean, if, if I, I feel like, you know, I say this declaratively, but it's probably not that true. I feel like if I saw God divide a sea and I walked through it, I'd say, yeah, I believe. I'm in. Right? I feel like if I woke up every morning and there was fresh made bread laying on the ground for me to eat, apparently it didn't get sandy. I don't know how that worked, but apparently I, I think I would wake up and I would think, yeah, I'm all in with this guy. Right? Like, I, I'm all in with this God. But what if I told you, what if I told you that what God did in the Old Testament pales in comparison to what he's doing today? What if I told you that the greatest Old Testament saints would joyfully trade places with the lowliest New Covenant believer? That, I think, is what the big story is telling us today. That there, there has been a move throughout the people. And we have seen them as they have failed God. And we have seen them as they have experienced the hardship of God. And we see them bound toward exile. But God is going to do a new work among his people. And the new work that he's going to do among his people is better, is greater than the old work that he has done. In fact, Hebrews chapter 8 has already told us it is going to render it obsolete. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to spend our time together seeing why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Why it's better to live right now than it was in the days of Joshua when they marched around the walls of Jericho. And the first thing I want you to see is that we have a new trajectory. We have a new trajectory. So, if, uh, and I have this written down here at the bottom, if, well my pencil's not working so that's unfortunate. Um, that if we were to have the yearbook verses of the year, it's two of them, and I can name both of them, right? If you turn to the yearbook and you see everybody's, the verses they list, it's Philippians 4.13. And then if you want to be sharp, right? Like if you want to show that you're a biblical scholar and you even know the Old Testament, you put Jeremiah 29.11. What does Jeremiah 29.11 says? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I think, just like Philippians 4.13, we typically always strip it of its context in the same way. We do the same violence to Jeremiah 29.11 that we do to Philippians 4.13 when we think it helps us lift a thousand pounds in deadlift. That what we typically think when we come to Jeremiah 29.11 that it means is that it's 
in some way going to allow us to live the life that we want to live. That God has a plan to prosper me. God has a plan for peace for me. God has a, a good plan for my life. And that good plan must mean that I get to live the kind of life that I want to live. That I'm going to attain all of the accomplishments that I'm seeking to accomp- uh, attain. That I'm going to experience the adventure that I'm looking for with all of my life. But what's interesting, and many of you have probably experienced this, is when life happens, and this is your understanding of Jeremiah 29, 11, that, that God is going to prosper you, and God has got a good plan for your life, and God's got a great purpose. It's going to make your life, you're going you're to be able to enjoy a life even better than you can imagine. When, when you have a car accident and your spine is shattered, when by no responsibility of your own, your company shuts down, when, when, you're born, when your child is born with special needs or your wife gets dementia, you want to look up at God and say, God, I thought you had a plan to prosper me. Lord, I, I thought that you had a plan for my future. Lord, I, I thought that you had a, a plan for my life that was a good plan, and this feels like anything but good. It makes us believe that God has in some way forsaken us. But you see, Jeremiah 29, 11 was written to a nation of people that was about to be raised to the ground. It's written to the people of Judah in preparation for their going into exile. And what God is telling them in Jeremiah 29, 11 is, I am going to tear you down. I am going to take you apart limb by limb. I am going to allow Babylon to come in and to ravage you. Most of your most promising leaders are going to be marched off to go and leave in the Babylonian empire. I'm going to allow you to be a, a scar on the face of the earth. I'm going to allow you to be an embarrassment among all of the other nations. You are going to become servants to mad kings who believe that they're gods. I'm going to take you, my people, and I'm going to turn you into a blank slate. But he comes into Jeremiah 29, 11, and he says, even though you won't taste it, and even though you won't experience it, and even though the hard days are what's in store for the people of this generation, what I want you to know is that upon that blank slate, I'm going to build a new people, and I'm going to have a new relationship with them. And it is a, a relationship that is going to be utterly transformed compared to the relationship that I have with my people today. That what he's doing is he's preparing them for a new covenant to let them know that he, that generation may be done, but God is not yet done. See, what God is doing there is he is, is explaining to them where the trajectory has gone, but then where the trajectory will now go. See, in the old covenant, the old covenant moved from redemption to exile. The old covenant moved from redemption to exile. And I wish I was going to draw and show you all this. Just trust me, it was going to be a cool illustration, I promise. But I think we should probably start, first of all, with meaning, what do we mean by covenant? God has chosen to relate to his people through a covenant. And a covenant really is a relationship agreement. The way that this often happened in, in the ancient world is you would have a, a world superpower and then you would have lesser nations and they would enter into a covenant with one another and the, the superpower would offer protection and provision to the lesser nation and the lesser nation would offer uh, faithfulness to the greater uh, the, the superpower, they would promise not to encroach upon their territory, they would promise no rebellions or insurrections, and, and often they would pay a tax to this great nation. And this is a, a picture of the way God intended his relationship with his people to be. God enters into a relationship with his people, and he is the clear superpower. They are nothing but a spot on a map. Like, they are hardly even recognizable as a people. And yet God, because of his love, says, I want you, I choose you, I will protect you, I will deliver you. 
so far as you follow the stipulations of the covenant. And so he makes reference here, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the old covenant finds its origins there in the Exodus. That God chooses the people of Israel and he declares his love for them. And because he loves them, he redeems them out of Israel. He, he delivers them and buys them out of them slavery by his, by his own power, by his own might. That God does it all and Israel does nothing. And, he, and having displayed his love for them and having displayed his power for them and having displayed what a, what a benefit it is to be in relationship with this God in alliance with this God, he brings them out into the Sinai Desert and he, he takes Moses to the top of the mountain and the earthquakes and the lightning strikes and there God gives him the Ten Commandments. And what are they? They are the stipulations of the covenant. They are to show that this is what it means to live in relationship with God. That if you will honor me, I will bless you. If you will dishonor me, I will curse you. And there, in and of itself, lies the problem with the old covenant. You see, the old covenant was a covenant of works. It was a covenant of works. God had done a great work for them, and so now, in, in allegiance to God, they would do great works for God, that they would abide by the law that God has said, and they would honor His holy, and they would be holy, just as the Lord was holy. And as we've seen in Deuteronomy, in our time there, when they would honor the Lord, the Lord would bless them richly, and He would prosper them, and make them a superpower, as we saw in the days of David and in Solomon, unlike anything in the rest of the world. They would be renowned for their wisdom, and renowned for their wealth, and renowned for their prosperity. But, as is more often the case throughout the Old Testament, when they were unfaithful to the covenant, when they, when they broke the stipulation, when they, when they did what was right in their own eyes, when they followed after their own hearts, then the Lord would allow curses to come down upon his people. He would allow other nations to occupy them and to bring hardship among them. That is, from the beginning of Sinai, you need to understand that the trajectory began at redemption. God redeems his people out of Egypt. God, God takes them out of slavery. They didn't deserve it. He loved them. They weren't capable of it. He loved them. He didn't have to do it. He loved them. He redeems them out of slavery. But as soon as they enter into the covenant of works, it was a downward trajectory toward exile from there. Now, of course, we know that there were revivals, and we know that there were reforms, and we know that there were various times in which the the morality of Israel would, would take an uptick, but overall the trajectory was always downward. That from Sinai, the, the deliverance out of Exodus, the redemption out of Egypt was always headed toward exile from there. And if your relationship with God is contingent upon your performance for him, if in your mind you're living and operating with a, a covenant of works mentality, can I say you're headed toward exile too? You're headed toward exile too. No man, no woman has the motives, the attitude, and the actions that are in perfect alignment all the way across to live up to the holy standards of the Lord. And so if our responsibility is to uphold our end of the deal, we're going to drop it every time. We're going to fail every single time, and we are destined toward exile. That's where the new covenant that Jeremiah is discussing in chapter 31 comes in. It's a completely different trajectory. It takes the old trajectory that started with redemption and ended in exile and it flips it on its head. That the new covenant begins in exile and moves you toward redemption. 
I want you to notice there in the text, at the end of verse 31, he says, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, remember at this time, there is only a Judah. Israel has been in uh, captivity for some time now. They were already taken off by the Assyrians. And we know that Judah too is about, by the end of the book of Jeremiah, going to be taken off into Babylon into their own captivity. And never again will all of the nation be completely united and in the promised land and possess all of the inheritance that God had given to them. There will not be in the Old Testament a reunification of all of Israel. But God says that upon this blank slate that I have made, even though it looks meek and even, or even though it looks bleak and even though it looks as though I am finished working, I am not done working, that what is coming in a new covenant is a new relationship with my people when I will bring all of my people together and I will have a different kind of relationship with them than I used to have. That I'm going to initiate among them a, a covenant in which they are actually able to keep it. I'm going to install among them a, a, a relationship in which they can certainly upkeep the stipulations. And what they will know is unity and, and joy and inheritance. And they will experience the full bounty of what I'm doing. So it starts at the place of exile and it gives hope. And what you have to understand is that this is the context from which every New Testament writer writes their books. That if you don't understand these arcs, if you don't understand the trajectories of the Bible, of the Old Covenant from, from redemption to exile, and the New Covenant from exile to redemption, you have, you're going to have a hard time making sense of the theology of the apostles. See, here's what the apostles recognized. They were living in a time of Roman occupation. They were living in Jerusalem, perhaps, or in the area that would have been historic Israel. But they weren't their own people. They had a puppet king. They were servants to a, a pagan, a pagan uh, emperor. And so here, in the midst of all of this, God steps in. That Jesus comes to them as the Messiah in the midst of their exile. That God doesn't just wait and say, I'm going to do something new. He comes himself to accomplish it. And God, Jesus comes and he experiences the exile just like they experienced the exile. And just like we experienced the exile. And Jesus suffered under the Roman occupation just as they were suffering under the Roman occupation. And, and Jesus was tempted in all the ways that they were tempted. And Jesus was even executed and murdered as a result of all of these things. But then Jesus was raised again to show that this was in fact a new work. That what Jesus was doing with them in the exile is he was redeeming them in the same way that God had redeemed Israel all those years ago out of Egypt. Except this was a work of greater finality. This was a work of greater accomplishment because this was a work that had actually overcome the problem at the start. And so for the apostles, once they realized this, once they recognized this, the, the reason they were willing to suffer the reason they were willing to be persecuted, the, the, the reason they were willing to say, I will lay down my life for God right now, the reason they were willing to go into the prisons and sing in the prison, the reason they were willing to encounter all of this 
is they recognized the trajectory. That was as bad as life was going to be for them. They were headed toward a final redemption. That, and yes, Jesus, by his work on the cross and the resurrection, had redeemed them. But Jesus was still in the process of redeeming them. Jesus ascends to the throne beside, the hev- beside his heavenly Father to prepare for a time in which he would come and bring full and total redemption. And so here they were living in Babylon, but Jesus had already assured them they were headed to the new Jerusalem. And so this is why Peter opens up his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1. And you know what he calls the people there that are suffering and being lit up as torches in Nero's garden? He calls them elect exiles. You are the chosen of God, yes. You are living in exile, yes. But brothers, this is not as good as it's going to get. Your suffering will not endure. The new covenant will endure. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 8 is able to say, For I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. This is why Paul said, Flog me and I'll keep going. Stone me and I'll keep preaching. Shipwreck me and I will not stop. Imprison me and I'll win over the guards. Because right now I'm in exile. But I'm an elect exile and I am headed toward a place of redemption. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't just fun- this trajectory doesn't just form the context for the apostolic life. This forms the context of mine and your Christian life. This is why we can press on. This is why we can face a shattered spine in a car accident or the loss of our job when the plant closes down or the hardship of a wife or husband with dementia or a child with special needs because we know, we know that Christ has accomplished it. And this, this, what we experience right now is as bad as it's going to get. We're not headed to exile. We're in exile. We're headed to redemption. There is a a peephole of hope that we're able to look through and see now in vivid HD that Christ has come, the new covenant has been inaugurated, and we are headed to be redeemed with him in the new Jerusalem. We have a new trajectory in the new covenant. That's not all we have, though. We have a new relationship. We have a new relationship. If in the morning you woke up and you looked in the mirror and you were gaunt and gray, you could put makeup on yourself and make yourself look a bit better. You, you could go and you could get plastic surgery and you could look a lot better. But if the reason that you were gaunt and gray is that you needed a heart transplant, all you're doing is decorating a soon-to-be corpse. This is the issue of the Old Covenant. Remember, at the beginning of Jeremiah's prophecy has been Josiah's reform. And Josiah, they've discovered the the book of the law. And he's initiated all the reforms to get rid of all of the idols. And to begin to reestablish the worship in the temple. And he reestablishes all the rituals and the Passover. But what becomes clear over the course of Jeremiah's ministry is that it was skin deep. It was makeup on a corpse. It was, it, was just, it was just plastic surgery when really what was needed was a heart transplant. So that's what God says he's going to do. That God's response to the unfaithfulness of his people is not, y'all got to do better. God's response in the new covenant is not, you need to try harder. God's response is, I will do it for you. 
I will do it for you. Look at verse 33. I think it's six times in just four verses, the phrase I will comes up. Four of those happen right here. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is going to do it. For us, God is going to come and establish a new kind of relationship with his people. And it's not because of who his people are. It's because of who he is and what he's going to do. See, here's what I think a lot of us believe. A lot of us believe there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Or maybe it's the same God, but God in some way evolved. That there's the Old Testament version of God, in other words. And there's a New Testament version of God. That in some ways, that God in the Old Testament was wrathful and vicious and mean and awful. And then in the New Testament, he's lovey-dovey grandpa God, right? But God does not change himself on our account. God does not lower his holiness. God does not diminish his righteousness. God does not change his standard. Holiness is holiness. Righteousness is righteousness. Truth is truth. Sin is sin. And God does not diminish this in the least. God does not come into the new covenant and say, I'm going to change myself. God comes to the new covenant and he says, I'm going to change my people. I'm going to change my people. I'm going to do a new work among my people so that they have a new heart and a new nature. And I'm not going to stop at the surface level. I'm not interested in sacrifices. I'm interested in mercy, Jesus says. So he's doing a new work. Where he's going to transform. And this is what he says. He says, I'm going to do it at the heart level. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. Now, the Hebrew people, I've mentioned this to you before, but I think it bears repeating here because it's important if you're going to understand this in the proper context. That the Hebrew people meant something different by heart than what we usually mean by heart. When we think about love somebody with all your heart, we think about like love somebody with all of your emotions. Love somebody with all of your passion. Love somebody with all of your affection. Love somebody with all of your feel goods, right? And that's part of it. I I don't want to diminish that. It's just a fraction of the story, man. Like, it's just a fraction of the story. That when, I, when, when God was telling the Hebrew people to love him with all of their hearts, what he was saying is to love them in the totality of who he had made them to be. To love them in the totality of who they were as people. See, for the Hebrew people, the heart took three dimensions. It was, on one, set, on, on one hand, it was cognition. It, it was, the heart is the place where you think. The heart is the place where you hold beliefs. The heart is the place where your opinions lie. The, the heart is the place where you have understanding. And then, the heart also is the place of the affect. The, the, in other words, the, the heart is the place where you have desires. The heart is the place where you have wishes. The heart is the place where, where you love, where you have passion, where you have affection, where, where you have the, all of the things that you want in life, they're found there in the heart. So it's, it's what you understand, and it's what you desire. And then finally, it's also the seat of the will. It's the, it's the place of volition. It's, it's where decisions are made. It's where actions come from. It's where obedience happens and so it's it's what you understand is part of what he intends by saying the heart it's it's what you love it's what you desire that's part of what he says what he's talking about when he's talking about the heart and and it's what you ultimately do it's the volition that you it's the decisions that you make it's the actions that you take with your life it's your obedience all of these are in view and so what he has in mind is transforming the total person and by transforming the total person individually, he's going to transform the entire nation at the same time. 
I want you to think about what this means. That what a new heart does is a new heart brings new understanding. Paul helps us understand the problem. Okay, the, the problem with you and I is that we are born dead, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says. We have no ability to be able to see and to think. And part of the corruption of sin in the earth is what is called the noetic effect. That means that you've never had a perfectly rational thought. It, it, it means that you've never had an opinion that isn't in some way shaped by your sinful predilections. It means that, that you've never been able to, to see God and think of God in entirely the way that you should see and think of God. And before you know Christ, very often what Christ says seems crazy, doesn't it? It seems crazy. It seems crazy to, to, when, when there's so much to be had in this world to say, no, I'm going to live for the next one that I can't see, thank you. It, it seems crazy when, when, he said, when Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It seems crazy to say, yeah, I'll sign up for that. When, when Jesus says the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no, no uh, bed to lay his head, so come and follow me. It seems crazy that you would say, well, yeah, I'll take that deal. That sounds awesome. Sounds great. Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It's the, the second verse here on the screen. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so what God says in the new covenant, what's going to happen when he writes his law on your, on your heart, when he transforms your, your inward being to be in alignment with what he says, is now what used to seem crazy to you seems like the only rational path. That, that what used to seem unreasonable to you now seems like the wisest possible solution. I bet for many of you, when you've come to faith in Christ, that would be your story. That early in your life, it seemed like crazy that you would give all of your life to Christ, to, to Christ and become one of these crazy Christians that, that seem to have all the things they have to be involved with. And then one day, God opened up your eyes and a miracle happened and that dead corpse came to life. And what you were blind to now seemed apparent and obvious. That's why I described what, what happened with Haley as a miracle. It's a miracle when the dead come to life. It's a, it's a miracle when the blind come to sight. It's a miracle when the deaf begin to hear. And when you begin to understand the gospel, and when the gospel becomes rational to you, and when the gospel becomes reasonable to you, and when it becomes the, the, what, you, what, what Paul, that I will, I will take the foolishness of the cross over the wisdom of this earth every day. When that becomes the proposition that makes all the sense in the world to you, you nothing short of a miracle has taken place in your life. This is what it means to be in the new covenant. That God is going to give his people a mind for him. God is going to give his people an understanding of him. God is going to give his people an understanding, an ability to open up his law and to love his law and to treasure his law and to make sense of his law. That's not all a new heart does. A new heart brings new understanding and then a new heart creates new desires. This gets to the affect. This is the, the area in which we most associate with the will. So what he's saying there is, he's, I, when he writes the, on the tablet of our hearts, he's going to change what we want. He's going to change what we love. I, I tell people all the time, you, you know, we struggle with knowing what the will of God is, and we think it's some, crack, some code we have to crack. Well, the will of God is apparent. The will of God is that you be holy, and the will of God is that you be sexually pure, and the will of God is that you be sanctified. And if you've got all of these things lined up in your life, well, then the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, does that mean he'll give you your, your 
Bentley or Mercedes? Does that mean he's going to give you a a 10-bedroom mansion? No, it means that by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, by the work of the new covenant, with the new nature that's in you, he's going to take your heart and he's going to make it his heart. He's going to bring you in alignment with wanting what he wants. And so now you're in a season of life in which you're in the will of God. You're being sanctified. You're, you're seeking to be holy. You're not being sexually immoral. All these things that are explicitly stated as the will of God in the Bible. Now you just do what you want to do because what you want to do is bring God glory with your life. So it doesn't matter what college you go to. Go to whichever college and just bring God glory there. It doesn't matter what career you choose. Choose whatever career. Just bring God glory there. That's God's will for your life. That's why... We can, we can always say that the best litmus test for the Christian life, to whether, know whether or not you're truly in the faith, to know whether or not you've truly been regenerate by, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, to, to know whether or not you truly know Christ, there's one question that you can ask that should cut you to the heart every time. Do you love God? Do you love God? It's not natural to love God. It's not intrinsic to love God. The natural person sees it and it's foolishness to them. The natural person hears it and it seems like a myth. It seems like a fairy tale. But for the children of God, it changes the heart and they love him. Not that long ago, so, uh, uh, a, someone's uh, posted a Facebook post that came across my feed. And they were describing what they hope heaven is like. And as they described what they hoped heaven was like, they described all of the, the things that they loved and they hoped that they were there. And they described all of the people that they loved and they hoped that they were there. And they described all of the, the beauty of the creation and how they can't wait to see how much more beautiful it is in heaven. And they, they described all of the things that are their favorite things that they hoped they could go and they would be able to do, their favorite hobbies, and they would be able to enjoy them. And they would be there and there would be no peace, there would be no anxiety and only peace and there would be no sadness and there would be only joy. And that's beautiful, right? And we know that heaven is described in many of those ways. But there was a glaring omission from the description of heaven. There was no mention as to whether or not God was going to be there. There was no mention as to whether or not Christ was going to be there. Would you be willing to take heaven... If it had all the people that you love and all the things that you like and all the beauty that you can imagine and all the peace you can hope for if God wasn't going to be there, that gets to the heart of the question. Do you love what God can do for you or do you love God? Do you love God? Has God so transformed your heart that you'll say, I'll take whatever else is there. As long as God is there, I want it. As long as Christ is there, nothing else even matters. I just want to be with Christ. This is the transformation of the new covenant. A new understanding and a new desire and a new heart enables new abilities. A new heart enables new abilities. You'll see there at the end of verse 33. He says something that we have, I, I've tried to point it out as often as we've come across it in the Old Testament. But he says something that's very ubiquitous across the Old Testament. He says, I will be their God. And they shall be my people. This is the statement, this is the original statement of the covenant that God is going to make with his people. Even before he delivers them. When he comes to Moses and he's calling Moses to to deliver his people. This is what God tells him in Exodus chapter 6 verses 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But what's the issue? The issue is that he has always been their God. 
but they have blatantly refused to be his people. Every time there was a God that offered them some kind of shiny picture of something, they left the Lord to go and run after him. Every time a, a wild, harebrained idea popped into their head, they assumed that idea was better than God's idea. And they ran and chased after their own minds. Every time they wanted something, they, they wouldn't sacrifice and believe that perhaps God was keeping them away from something, they, or keeping them away from pain. They assumed that God was keeping them away from something good. And they would go and chase after it. And so God had decisively been for his people, but his people had just as decisively abandoned him. So what he's going to do when he writes his law in their inward parts, when it, in, his, in their inward person, when he writes their law, his law on their hearts, he's going to change their ability so that now they're able to be faithful where they were before were only unfaithful. Uh, Martin Luther calls this the bondage of the will. That before their will was bound and before they were unable to see and before they were unable to do and before they were unwilling. They were, they were just about themselves all the time. But what's going to happen in the new covenant is the will is going to be loosened of the shackles of sin. It's going to be made alive through the work of the Spirit. And now they can actually obey. They have an ability, a supernatural ability to bring God glory. Not just with what they do, but how they think. And not just how they think, but how they, how they feel that all of these things come in alignment now to bring God glory with his life. See, brothers and sisters, the new covenant is a heart transplant. It's not plastic surgery. And that's why we stand out. We have to stand out in the world that we live in because we are the living among the dead. We have to stand out in the world that we live in because we are the light in the midst of the darkness. We, we are the salt in the midst of the rot. Can I ask you, do you stand out do you stand out at school? Do you live a life that is distinctly Christian? Do you stand out in the workplace? Do you live a life that is distinctly Christian? Do you stand out as a family? Do you live a life, are you living lives that are distinctly Christian? Oh, the new covenant can't blend in. The miracles can't be covered up. We're talking about a heart transplant. Don't you want to go and tell others about it? We have a new relationship. And we have new access we have new access. So Plato, the philosopher, he, was, he lived about 500 years before the time of Christ. And, and one of his most famous teachings is called the parable of the cave. The parable of the cave. That what Plato believed was that most people never actually saw reality. They only saw shadows of reality. That for most people, without spiritual understanding and, and perfectly rational thought, they were essentially imprisoned in a cave by a fire. And their only concept of reality was, was the, the shadows of the images that would walk by that were, that were projected up onto the wall of the cave. And so they could see shapes of reality, but they couldn't see what was real. They could see the general dimensions of what was out there, but it was always out of sorts and hard for them to make out. And what you should realize is that when the author of Hebrews is writing his letter, when he's writing his sermon, he's writing to a group of Greek Jews. They, they would have had this platonic background and to understand what he's saying. And so he builds on that. Listen to what he says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it's there in the middle. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. 
Here's what he's saying. The old covenant was a shadow. The new covenant is reality. The old covenant was a portrait. But the new covenant is a person. The old covenant was a way that you could make out the general description. But in the new covenant, you can see Christ risen from the dead in high definition and know this is what God has been doing from the beginning. He is moving them now from exile toward redemption through the person of Christ. That makes the the new covenant very good news for us. Very good news for us. That in the new covenant we can all know him personally. We can all know him personally. In the old covenant, the people of God related to God through peop- through individuals who had a special relationship. So you had David. David was filled with the Spirit, but the people weren't filled with the Spirit. And so the people of God related to God through David. You had the, the judges, the judgments. They had, uh, there, there's a word that's used in the, in the Septuagint called charisma. That's where our word comes from, and, which basically meant that, that God would give them special abilities to be able to do things that they weren't ordinarily able to do. And the, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon Deborah or Gideon or Samson, and, and they would be able to, to have some kind of unique relationship that was, would salvage the people of God. And so the people of God were relating to them through the, through the judges. The prophets, Jeremiah is the same way, right? Like God would speak to the prophets and then having spoken to the prophets, the prophets would go and speak to the people. So so there was always an indirect relationship with God as a result. But look at what he says here now. He says, no longer shall, this is verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. In other words, there's not going to be someone with a a special relationship with God that's going to come and tell you and say, let me tell you how you can know the Lord. Let me me tell you about the Lord. Rather, 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 for they shall all know me. For they shall all know me. Now, I am a Baptist, and I am unapologetically a Baptist. And one of the reasons I'm an unapologetic Baptist has nothing to do with the Southern Baptist Commission. It is about the priesthood of believers, man. The priesthood of believers. That we, we now all know God. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what your background is. As long as you come through Christ, you can know God. You're not dependent upon me. You're not dependent upon a president or a king or a congress. You're not dependent upon a priest. You can know him. What particularly stands out here is most of the time throughout the Bible, we, we in the West, and I've warned us against this in the past, we in the West try to individualize almost everything, and we make things too individual. And, but the majority of the time throughout the Old Testament, he's talking to a nation of people. But right here, he's actually talking to individuals. All of them will know me. All of them. You. You. Think about what this means. God, Jesus knows everything that is to know about you already. He knows how you've sinned. He knows what your attitude problems are. He knows what your motivational problems are. He knows what your disobedient problems are. He knows everything about you. And he still wants you. And he still loves you. That means you can't scare him off. You can't scare him off because you know him. And he knows you. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You you know him. And because you know him, you always have him. You'll never be without him. Now, now you are able to actually treasure Christ, actually enjoy Christ, and actually experience the fullness of what he has to offer. We can all know him personally, and we can all go to him directly. In the Old Covenant, you went to God 
primarily through the priests. And most of the priests went to the holy area, but only one priest, one time a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And they would tie a rope around the man's ankles in case he went in with an improper offering and God struck him dead so they could drag him out. There was a veil that separated the presence of God. But here, listen to what he says. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And this is the thing that the writer of Hebrews just can't get past. We don't need priests anymore. We don't need offerings anymore. We don't need sacrifices anymore because a greater priest and a greater temple has come. And he stood and he was hung on the cross and from the cross after he had experienced the full wrath of God for my sin and for your sin poured out upon him. He declared, it is finished. And upon the pronouncement of those words, the veil separating the people of God from the presence of God and the Holy of Holies was torn by the hands of God from top to bottom. And now you and I, you and I can go to him ourselves. It's the priesthood of believers. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are now a royal priesthood. It doesn't matter if you're from the tribe of Levi or the tribe of Del Earnhardt. So long as you go through Christ, you have access to the Holy of Holies, man. Think about what this means in the new covenant. Are you afraid? You can go right now yourself and take refuge in the omnipotent God of the universe. Are you overwhelmed? You have a direct line through Christ to have access to the source from which all wisdom comes. And all wisdom is derived. Are you in sin? You can go to God yourself and through the sacrifice that has been offered to Christ, you can go to him and confess your sins to him face to face. Are you thankful for what God has done for you? Are you thankful for the family that you have? Are you thankful for the salvation that you've experienced? Are you thankful for the peace that is offered? Are you thankful that you're headed to redemption? You can go to him yourself. And in the very presence of the living God, you can tell him to his face how good he is. How often are you doing that? Are you using the access that God has given to you? It is a new covenant miracle purchased by the person of Christ. We can know him personally, we can go to him directly, and we can all be forgiven by him decisively. For I will forgive their iniquity, the last two I wills, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The Mosaic law, rabbis have searched, there are 613 stipulations in the Old Covenant. 613 laws. Can I just, how are you doing on all those? How are you doing on all this? Because Jesus even tells us, maybe you're doing them on the outside, but your heart, your motives, all of those things are corrupting even the best works that you do. We had no hope. We had no chance. And all of us have some awareness that we have sin in our lives, and there's a price to be paid for that sin. And then God himself paid the price. He paid the price. Listen to what Hebrews says in chapter 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you hear what he says is going to happen? God has so decisively forgiven your sin. God says, I have 
forgotten your sin. But the author of Hebrews takes it a step further and says, not only has God forgiven your sin, not only has God forgotten your sin, God is in the process of helping you forget your sin. That he is perfecting that accusing conscience that you have, that, that conscience that abuses you, and that conscience that reminds you of all the bad things that you've done, and all the poor motives that you have, and all the sins in your life. That conscience that is constantly coming to you and beating you down. He says, I'm going to make it so that you don't even remember your own sins. I am perfecting your conscience and making you new. He has, in other words, given us a sermon, a song to sing back through the abuse of our conscience. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't want to go back to the Old Testament. I don't want to go back to the Old Covenant. I prefer the cross to the manna. I prefer the torn veil to the divided sea. And I prefer the resurrection of the risen Christ to the falling walls of Jericho. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we are in the new covenant this morning? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.